Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, I hope you didn't uh, drop your crystal ball this morning because we're going to need that. <laughs> I'll do my best, Nate. I'll do my best. You know me. I'm always thinking about the future, but I'm rooted in the past. I, I love it. Um, okay, so last week I did spend the entire podcast looking back on everything that's transpired in the world of ETFs this year. And so, uh, as I mentioned at the top, given that you are a financial futurist, we're going to peer into that uh, crystal ball of yours and find out what may happen in 2024. And so you provided me with a list of, uh, I'd say, four or five predictions here. Or I should say, at a minimum, these are key areas you're watching. And so let's go through these, and I'll I'll tell you, um, honestly, I would prefer to skip the first one. But uh, (laughs) we we can't avoid this topic uh, next year, and that's that 2024 is an election year. God help us all. Um, <laughs> but look, I, uh, I I like your take on this. It's sort of like a prediction that you don't have a prediction because you say, uh, good luck figuring out how to position a portfolio around the election. So explain that. I and mean, then you also have what I thought was an interesting ETF angle here. Well, so every time, like this is not the first time I've gone into a conference during the primary season, right? So every four years for the last 12 years, this will be the third time we've gone into an election cycle. This year we'll be at the exchange uh, down in Florida, obviously, and we'll be talking about politics. It's impossible not to. We've got Amy Walters from the Cook Political Report. We've got other folks on stage. Politics isn't my jam. I'm not going to wade into that. However, every time we've had these election cycles since I started investing in the late 80s, inevitably you read all these headlines about what a blank victory means for your portfolio. It's one of the most predictable articles ever written in in financial journalism. Uh, And they're always basically wrong. And what they usually are is stuff around policy, regulatory changes. This, This person will be good for oil. This person will be good for clean energy, whatever. Um, just assume all of it's baked in. None of it ever quite pans out the way everybody thinks it does. Trying to get smarter than the polling numbers does not actually work. Here's an actual prediction, though, that I 100% know that you're going to see. There is going to be a bull market on people trying to sell you on their product based on how you think you're going to vote, whether that's uh, you know, the products from Strive or Dems, the Democratic Large Cap Corp. I mean, we now actually have specific products named after parties. Uh, I would avoid all of this. I don't think any of it is playable. I don't think these are headlines that you can make money on. Uh, if it's your only source of entertainment, God bless. But I really suggest that most investors try to ignore pre-positioning month by month their portfolio for the election. I love that take on the ETF side because, uh, look, I, I, I love ETF wholesalers. I know a lot of them, but uh, they have a very difficult job in that they have to figure out a way to get advisors and, and I guess, investors' attention. And, uh, you know, what better way to do that than with a political hook? 
Now, I, I think you know, I always say, and this is pretty cliche, don't mix politics with portfolios, right? That's, that's always a bad idea. But it can be tough. There's going to be a lot of headlines swirling. You mentioned, you know, different policies and, and potential regulatory changes. And I think it's difficult for some advisors and investors not to look at the political landscape and, and think, hey, how should I position my portfolio? And, and, and look, of course it matters, right? I'm not suggesting that literally whoever is leading the developed world doesn't matter. Of course it matters long-term to your portfolio. My point is trying to game whether the market's going to go up or down or this sector's going to go up or down based on the vagaries of polling is incredibly dumb. I just don't think that that's a smart way to think about things. By all means, if you have opinions about whether your guy is better for your economic well-being or the planet, you should like do your research and go vote. I'm encouraging people to do that. My point is don't mix that with the individual investments you're making uh, you know, month by month. Okay, so let me ask you this then. I'm going to try to get you riled up a little bit here today. Um, what about ESG ETFs? Because, you, you, you know, you and I have discussed how politicized that space has become, rightly or wrongly. It, it just has, right? It's highly yeah, polarizing. Yeah. And with all of the potential uh, political fireworks that I, I think we'll see next year, do you think that's good for ESG ETFs, or is it going to make things even more difficult in that space? Because it has been a trying year overall for ESG ETFs. Yeah, I, I think the thing to remember here is that the United States market opinion about ESG actually matters very little to the global capital flows around ESG. Uh, so, yeah, Congress is hauling Vanguard in, apparently. We got that announcement yesterday. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, to talk about decarbonization. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, you know, and, and by all means, if what we're going to talk about is things like who's voting, I'm yes, those are conversations we should have. You know me, Nate. For years, I've been tell, talking about how much I think people should be directly involved in voting their shares and aren't. Uh, so that's all great. But in terms of things like are people going to continue to throw money into clean energy and carbon transition funds, uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, while this was a down year on flows for specifically ESG ETFs listed in the United States, that is an incredibly tiny bucket of targeted funds. Uh, if you look at the flows globally, still floods going into clean energy carbon transition coming from sovereign wealth funds, coming from major institutions. Uh, if you look at, at ESG that's not in these sort of very high-profile package products, it's all had positive flow years. And if you look at the performance, even like the, the funds we would have might you know, maybe talked about greenwashing, sort of the least ESG versions of pouring beta indexes, all have performed this year. So it's very hard to say ESG is, like, dead. Uh, in fact, we have a session that exchange basically titled <laughs> Not Dead Yet, like Monty Python. Uh, it, U.S. investors may have soured on this for a moment. It's not going anywhere. Okay, your uh, next prediction involve something that will probably be the biggest story in ETFs, at least in the first quarter of next year, unless there's a huge uh, rug pull by the SEC, which, um, as I alluded to at the top, I can't completely rule that out. And that's the debut of spot Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> so, what are you going to talk about, Nate? I know. I know. What is your job? <laughs> it's it's going to be uh, extremely difficult. Okay, so your prediction is you are expecting these to finally come to market. Sure. 
and yeah. probably spot E3 ETFs too. And uh, I, I do want you to comment on that, but I felt like really the thrust of what you provided me was that while you see these ETFs as progress, there are some significant issues that still need to be solved for in the crypto space, namely on the regulatory side of the equation. So, so talk about that. Yeah, so look, having Bitcoin and ETH spot ETFs is a critical bridge function, right? It makes it easier to move money from the traditional economy to the decentralized economy. The challenge is that that last thing, the decentralized economy, still has no regulatory structure. So we may have gotten a product or two approved, you know, Bitcoin and ETH, but to do the really interesting stuff that decentralized finance promises we can do, you need a little bit more than that. You need a comprehensive digital assets structure to work underneath. Uh, which we're starting to see developed around the rest of the developed world. We're still not anywhere near doing that in the United States. So, yeah, this allows uh, U.S. investors who want to trade a U.S.-listed product to get access to this decentralized currency economy, which I think is very cool and has lots of potential long-term applications. But that economy is still going to get developed outside the United States, barring some sort of real regulation here in the U.S. So it's a step in the right direction. You know, obviously there'll be a lot of discussion around it in Fuhrer and flows, and it'll go up and it'll go down, and we'll keep talking about it forever. But the real meat here is when we can get into the promise of uh, really replacing some institutional functionality with what we could do with DeFi. On the regulatory side, if I recall correctly, and this goes back to what we were talking about, obviously with next year being an election year, I feel like maybe a year or two ago you talked about how you're not so sure that regulatory framework can really be put into place until after the 2024 election. Do yeah. I recall that correctly and maybe yeah, elaborate yeah, on I, it? I, I still believe that. I think that uh, one way or another, uh, when we're sitting here next year, uh, we will have crossed a bit of a partisan divide, right? Regardless of whoever is getting elected, chances are they ain't getting elected again, right? There are people right. So we're going to have some sort of phase shift in American leadership in Congress and in the White House over the next five years, right, if we get past this election cycle. And that's when I think we can have the real conversation about what does it mean to create a digitized economy uh, and have, have the actual interesting conversations without just, like, creating these fear, uncertainty, and denial, you know, headlines around, you know, is crypto being used to fund terrorism? Is it, you know responsible for human trafficking? Is it boiling the planet? I mean, we have these silly arguments that show such little grasp of what's really possible with this technology. I, I don't think we can get there until we get past this partisan divide, and I think that that takes another cycle. Before we move on, going back to the spot Bitcoin ETFs, and obviously I'm going to have a much more in-depth conversation here in a bit with Valkyrie's uh, Stephen McClure, but you and I were chatting offline about... Um, how, how would I explain this? You know, obviously I'm out on Twitter, X, you know, tweeting every headline, everything that happens around this race. Our, our good friend Eric Balchunas over uh, uh, at Bloomberg and James Safer, they're doing the same. And uh, I think it was around Grayscale where I, I was discussing, well, you know, maybe they, they won't be able to come to market at the same time as everybody else. And your response to me was basically, 
you know, look, the, the SEC is a bureaucracy. You know, the, you have a bunch of overworked um, st staff workers that are trying to get this thing to the finish line. There's not some big conspiracy going on behind the scenes with any of this stuff. They're just trying to do their job and ultimately bring these products to market. Would you be comfortable talking a little bit more about that? Because I know you, you've kind yeah, of given me a yeah. hard time because I, I tweet about this so much. Uh, that that maybe we've kind of lost the plot here on, on what's actually yeah. going on. I, you know, where I get particularly annoyed is when everybody reads, uh, you know, people who are really approaching the SEC filing system for the first time because they are interested in Bitcoin, assuming that things like the date on a document is somehow, like, written in stone, uh, that, that, like, it has some meaning. Uh, and I, I think it's really important to point out that the administrative state, which does lots of powerful things, uh, is is not something that rolls back up the Congress for every decision, right? So Congress made the SEC happen by passing laws, and then the SEC has largely just been given mandate by Congress ever since. So things like what is the filing date on this and whether or not that is, it means anything, these things slip continuously. Uh, we could have, if you told me tomorrow that we don't hear a peep about a Bitcoin ETF for six months, I would say, okay, that is within the realm of possibility. The SEC could go completely dark on this. You all be writing headlines about how it's a travesty and everybody needs to get sued again. But that's the point. The only thing you could do would be sue the SEC again and say, why aren't you doing your job? Uh, and in that case, they probably lose because not doing your job is by itself not enough. You have to be disparately not doing your job. You have to be favoring one person versus another. Uh, and so these these ideas that somehow there's a backroom deal going on and BlackRock's got the inside line because they know Gary or they know some staff member who has power, my experience in 30 years is that's just not how the process works. There's some clerk with stuff piled on his desk and they're having meetings saying, okay, we've been through this, we've been through this, we've been through this, what do y'all want to do? They're just figuring it out. It's just a bunch of people trying to get something done. But do you not think that process can be politicized at all? I mean, do you think Gary Gensler, for example, is completely neutral? And, and I would also add to what you were just saying. I mean, the SEC has been sued, and they've lost uh, to, to Grayscale and, and some others in the crypto world. And some people would argue the... Um, you know, look, the, the legal rationale is clear, but the, the reason the SEC got themselves into that situation to begin with was because perhaps they were taking more of a political view on the crypto space. Yeah, um, I, I, I think calling it a political view is difficult because I do, do I believe that Biden is personally calling Gary Gensler and telling him what to do? No, and if you do, then I don't think you really understand how the world works. Um, they, you know, are there discussions going on between congressmen and SEC staff people about the pros and cons of crypto? Of course, every single day, because congressmen in particular are the ones that are trying to get their constituencies' ideas across. And we know that we have pro and anti-crypto uh, congressmen, and they are, in fact, lobbying there. So, of course, politics is involved. But let's also be really clear. Reasonable people can disagree on a lot of this stuff. And while you and I may agree on one side of it, that doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with us is somehow a disingenuous idiot. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I, I agree with that. But can, can you imagine if we get into uh, early January, January 10th is the, the ARC uh, spot Bitcoin ETF deadline date, and the SEC 
disapproves these things? Can, can you imagine the, uh, oh, the it frenzy? Was, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we are headed for the rug pull of all time. I mean, it would be entertaining to write about for a week or two. <laughs> uh, but I don't, but, uh, but again, uh, put yourself in the position of people who are just doing a job. Would you have really spun up your staff for the last three months reviewing S1 filings, fine printing the 19B4s from each exchange, and then with, with the intent all along of just rug pulling this thing in the first quarter? No, that's not how most businesses work. So when you get six or seven people saying, yeah, they called us and told us we had to cross the T's on the S1, I think you can effectively read the tea leaves on that. I don't think it takes a genius. Yeah, I agree. And for the record, I believe that these things will be approved uh, yeah, I, around that time. I do think that an interesting story to watch is whether or not uh, GBTC will be able to uplist or convert. I would think that could be that could be delayed for uh, reason to peak or not. Like that's one of those cases where when we're sitting here deciding, you know, at some table about what who's going to go first or whether we're going to treat things differently based on how they came in or who's filing them. You know, that's one case where I could see there's enough distinction on GBTC that it could get could be treated differently. Whether that's pro or con, we'll see, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that it's con. Uh, your next prediction is uh, probably a pretty good prediction in just about every year, but I, I like this one because it comes on the heels of perhaps 2023's biggest story. And so you believe active ETFs will likely slow down and underperform on the whole. And I would say that active ETFs were probably – the most covered topic on ETF Prime this year? Right? Well, I guess besides five Bitcoin ETFs, right? But um, why, why do you think momentum might be slowing around active ETFs? Well, we're starting to run out of filings, uh, for one, right? So if we look, if we look at the, the products that have come to market this year, particularly from traditional active players like a Fidelity, uh, you know, Dimensional, PIMCO, uh, all the best ideas are pretty much getting into the ETF wrapper this year, right? So, like, literally, PIMCO's, I think it's PYLD, which is their best ideas fund. It's, it's literally run by the CIO. Um, that's now trading and, you know, get, catching a bid. You know, Fidelity's F fund is now trading and catching a bid. So, like, we've got a lot of, I would call, pretty high-profile active ETFs out there. So I'm, it's not like there's a giant pile of those things waiting. So we'll continue to see conversions for sure, uh, and we'll continue to see growth. What I don't think we're going to see is another year of like 20, 25% AUM flow directly into the active products. A lot of that, that big number was because of options overlay strategies and equity income products. Um, I think that those are going to cool off a little bit. I think the premiums that you can collect from those ball writing strategies are going to come down. Uh, and, and the other side that's more traditional stock picking active, like ARC, uh, you know, ARC, let, let's be clear, ARC had a heck of a year in performance. It hasn't translated into tens of billions of dollars in positive inflows. Uh, and I think investors have sort of realized that, you know, ho holy cow, uh, you know, an 81% drawdown is a lot, right? And that's what, if you peak, you know, peak to trough ARC over the last couple of years, that's what you experience. Um, so I think that that's going to be tricky. Um, I think that the power of the Magnificent Seven and the power of sort of momentum, you know, the momentum effect of uh, cap-weighted indexing is going to continue to make it very difficult for active managers to really eke out apples to apples out performance. I don't want to get sidetracked here. You mentioned the um, options overlay strategies. I think the poster child obviously being JEPI, right, the uh, J.P. Morgan Equity yep. Premium Income ETF. Um, 
Did, did you see there was this article this morning in the Financial Times where the gist of it was with a proliferation of these products and, and, and basically selling Vol that it's having an impact on uh, something like the VIX? Oh, of course. It, yeah. Do you think that's real? I mean, is this a, is this a situation oh, yeah, yeah, where ETFs bad. are actually impacting the underlying? Because we've spent a, a large chunk of our career arguing how the tail isn't wagging the, the dog here, you, you know, on ETFs, right? We've seen all these fear-mongering stories, but it sounds like maybe you think this is a situation where the rise of these products yeah, is impacting. Yeah, and, and look, we, this is pretty much, this is very trackable, right? So folks like Tier 1 Alpha um, track this stuff on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's not just ETFs, right? So equity income as a strategy or cover call rating, uh, selling ball, whatever we want to call it, these kinds of strategies exist enormously popular in the hedge fund community, tons of mutual funds tracking them. Um, you know, and they all have basically similar qualities, which is they're out there collecting premiums based on owning the underlying. Um, and there's only so much of that to go around, right? The dealers on the other side have to be buying that, right? Somebody has to be, like, writing the check for that. They then have to reposition. All of this goes into the overall sort of dealer book that has to get hedged every day. And what we've seen for the last year or two really is that the pinning effects around specific strikes, around uh, where dealers are particularly over their skis on this stuff really impact the local volatility on a day-to-day basis around certain strike points. So hmm. I, I think it's inarguable that this is affecting markets and market structure. Is that good or bad? No, it just means that sometimes a trade gets a little long in the tooth, and when those things unwind, it can be a little painful. Now, I'm not saying that to make people panic. Uh, I don't think Jeffy is headed for some giant drawdown. I'm just saying that you're paying something for that. I mean, remember, Jeffy may have had a heck of a year, but the queues are up 50%, right? So your your opportunity cost is enormous. Yeah, I expect the pendulum to swing back the other way in this space. You, you may recall, we've talked about this. I think that entire covered call uh, ETF space is a bubble. I, I think too too many products have come to market. Well, it's, it's worked, right? So, like, depending on what your perspective sort of. is, it has, been, it has been a trade that works, but it is not a trade that works in perpetuity. But, Dave, I mean, if you look at Jeppy's performance versus the S&P 500 this year, last I checked, Jeppy was trailing by some 10%. And, of course, it's not designed yeah, it's, to track the S&P 500. This but, is my point. Is yeah. Opportunity costs are enormous. And collecting, you know, a, an above-inflation level of income off of your equity portfolio may sound like a good idea when the equity market's up 6 8%. Uh, but when, but when the you know the mag sevens up sixty or fifty or forty, that's a, that's an enormous opportunity cost. Yeah, I agree. And all it's going to take is uh, you know a nice twenty five percent drawdown in equities, where people see, wait, I actually have equity risk with these products. That you, you mean these aren't just like fixed income <laughs> bond ETFs? I think that's going to get people's attention uh, because these these have been marketed as oh, this is a, a more defensive way to or income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think wait, people are going to be surprised. Wait, to be fair, it, it is. Like I said, I don't think any of these products is headed for some sort of catastrophe. The products are very well designed and do what they say on the tin. Uh, and the actively managed ones are run by teams that I've met, and I think are very good at their job. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to spread any fear whatsoever. I just don't think this is an obvious easy money trade anymore. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying that these are well constructed products, and there's there's fantastic teams behind them. What I'm saying is, from the end investor's perspective, and even some advisors, I think that they have some have viewed these almost as fixed income replacements. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I guess that's what I'm talking about, that they're going to be surprised when we do get a big drawdown how these things react. Um, all right, the last prediction that you gave me was around ETFs moving to T plus 1 settlement, which that happens in May, right? ETFs are going from T plus 2 to T plus 1 yep. settlement. And your prediction here, <laughs> this is perfect when we talk about fear-mongering, is that maybe there will be a little bit of fear-mongering around this, but you're telling everyone to remain calm, correct? Yeah, so this is like the <laughs> this is like the worst kept <laughs> secret in all of finance, right? It's like Y2K all over again. Uh, yes, there's a big software change that has to happen, just like in Y2K. Yes, everybody's known this is coming for literally years at this point. The DTCC has been running a daily test window on this forever at this point. Uh, and, and effectively, nobody who's actually doing this work is particularly concerned about it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's a complete non-event. Uh, luckily, this is going to happen around Memorial Day, so Canada is going to do it a day early because they're Canada, so they always have to be first. Uh, so they'll do it on May 27th. We'll do it on May 28th. I think I have the dates right. Uh, and, and most likely, absolutely nothing will happen and nobody will notice. However, in April and May, expect to see a lot of terrifying headlines about how the U.S. market structure is going to break, and it won't. The thing that I like about this, and I talked about this about a month ago on the podcast, is this does put ETFs on equal footing with mutual funds in terms of settlement times. And this isn't some huge deal, but I think just eliminating some of the confusion in the marketplace, I can tell you in talking with investors, when uh, they look at how trade settles, or trade settles, sometimes there is confusion around this. And, and this will line them up with mutual funds. And the other thing, it allows investors, if they want to access their cash on a uh, a, a sale, for for example, they can do so quicker. Yeah, so it, it is generally going to be pro-investor. It removes some counterparty risk, not that that's really ever been an issue for most ETF investors. Uh, it removes a little bit of uh, you know time lag. Yes, it shifts some of those burdens to other parts of the system. There are no free lunches, right? So if you're a custodian, if you run a back shop somewhere, yes, there you had to do some work, and maybe you're taking a little bit of trade financing risk if you're trading internationally because your European stocks aren't settling at T1, but your U.S. ETF is. So it's not like there's nothing that's going to go on here, and plenty of programmers are losing their minds over this, but it's also extremely well understood and not something I'm particularly worried about. It's all part of the inevitable push towards tokenized clearing uh, which will happen, you know, in 10 to 20 years. <laughs> I agree, once we get the regulatory uh, stuff ironed yep. out. Um, all right, a few minutes left before I let you go. I know you're not much of a uh, market prediction type person, and, and neither am I, right? I think most people know that. I always say my crystal ball is broken. However, I do think it's a useful exercise to at least consider what may happen in the markets every year. And I believe you saw this, but last week I posed the question out on uh, Twitter or X that if you could choose one ETF for 2024, what would that be? And I'm going to get a, a, an enormous response on this, but I did want to share with you a few ETFs that caught my attention, if, if you'll indulge me. I thought maybe we could just spend like a minute or two on, on each of these. Sure. Um, so I, the first one, I guess, that, that jumped out at me was TLT. Uh, several people responded with TLT, the iShares 20-plus year Treasury Bond ETF. That was obviously one of the biggest ETF stories this year in, in that it took in nearly $23 billion, even though it's down over 2%. And looking out to 2024, clearly this would be a play on rates coming back in on the long end. My question for you is, do you think those types of monster flows will carry over into 2024? 
No, I don't. I think this is going to be a much more normalized year. Um, I don't. I don't think that we're chasing a, a giant packet of returns by getting the curve just right. If anything, I think that. Uh, this could actually be a fairly boring year, right? I mean, I think the, the average street projection is for not really going into a reception, recession, you know, some sort of soft landing version. Um, I believe the current uh, markets would suggest we're headed for one rate cut next year. That's all pretty normal and average stuff. And with so much focus being on the election, I suspect that the market's going to take care of itself. If I was picking one one ticker for next year, it would probably be something like uh, Corey Hoffman's new return stack, stocks and bonds, because mm. I think that both markets are going to be just fine. And so if you're really just trying to juice that, do a little leverage. Yeah, not investment advice. My issue with TLT remains the same as it was even when rates were, were lower. And it, I guess it was an easier call when, when rates were lower. Just that the risk return profile of something like this still doesn't make yeah. sense to me. So you know, much duration. Yeah, they're yeah. I mean, taking on that duration risk for the, for the yield, and especially given the, the fact that you can get that yield elsewhere. I mean, if you really think things are going to fall off a cliff and, and we're heading for a doomsday economic scenario, I get it. But, you know, outside of that, I, I just don't – the risk-reward doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. All right, uh, next one, small-cap stocks. So an ETF like IJR, the iShares Core S&P, uh, small-cap ETF, or SPSM, the Spider Portfolio S&P 600 small-cap ETF. What I, would, what I would say here is small-caps have, have obviously underperformed this year. But I am seeing a lot more discussion around how this segment is undervalued and uh, it could be poised to, to sort of catch back up to large caps. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, this is one of those places where I actually think active management may may hold some sway next year. So it, it, the, the fund that I look at in the space that I keep shaking my head about is ADUV, which is the Advances U.S. Small Cap Value Fund, which is actively managed. Uh, you know, has, uh, I don't know what, $8 billion in it or something ridiculous already and has just crushed, you know, over, over any meaningful multi-year period. So I wouldn't be surprised for some of those DFA or Advanta small cap products to, to really outperform. A lot of the small cap wins seem to be around getting those little edge cases right, and that's the kind of quote-unquote active um, that both Advantis and DFA are doing here. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I've seen a lot of discussion just around how if you look at the small cap space, clearly you have a lot of companies that are not profitable, and you know, could an active manager come in and do a better job of, of sifting through the, the companies out there to, to find you know, better quality holdings. Now, I guess if small caps really started uh, running, maybe you want to be in the growthier stuff, but uh, I agree with you. I think I, I can see active management really shining here. I do, I do have to say, though, it's like it's difficult to sit here and talk about, like, yeah, UV has been killing it, blah, blah, blah. And, and yes, those things are true on a relative basis, but, again, I feel like it's really important to point out what a weird year this is. Like, here we've got small cap value up 15%, which is a huge year for small cap value. And yet, look at the cues. Like, yeah. you know, right. look, at the, look at the top of the cap chart. And, and like, you know, we're talking about a 35% performance gap in 11 months. It's insane. All right, last one I have for you. You mentioned Avantis, so it's another ticker from them. Ticker AVGV, which is the Avantis All Equity Markets Value ETF, which this is actually an ETF of ETFs. But I, I like this one because it combines two areas that we keep hearing about every single year, and they both keep disappointing, and that's value investing and international uh, exposure. So my question for you is, is, it, is now the time to jump into both of these? We hear this every year. 
Well, so I think value is tricky because there's so much focus on growth momentum and the index flows are really going to chase that. So I think the, the growth value thing, I think, is a little bit difficult. On international, I 100% think it, it's been on a bit of a tear in terms of flows this year. You know, back up to something around 20% of flows, both on uh, the bond and the equity side. That's that's sort of appropriate for an average U.S. investor. Like, that's above where home bias sits. So that means people are putting more money to international. I think that makes a ton of sense, particularly, honestly, in an election year with the amount of geopolitical chaos we've got going around the world. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's the time to hold up in the U.S. and and pretend that Europe doesn't exist, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think that international exposure makes a ton of sense going into 2024. Well, Dave, we'll have to leave it there. Such a uh, fun conversation this week. I always love hearing your perspective on what might be around the corner. It gets me thinking outside the box a little bit, which I think I definitely need. But I hope you well, understand. Talk about AI, Dave. Uh, I know. I, 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 you know what? I For some reason, I'm just fatigued on that topic. And it's not look, like I'm, I'm using chat GBT and, and Dolly and all that. It's, it's amazing. What's happening technologically there? Is, is truly mind-boggling. I think maybe just the frenzy in the markets earlier this year just it fatigued me on the topic a little bit. Totally but, fair. But it's, it's here to stay, no question about it. And I would say anybody, especially in the advisory space, I mean, I, I'm an advisor, if you're not paying attention to what's going on here, you're going to be behind the curve. I mean, you know that better than anybody. If, if, if yeah. you're not looking at how this is going to impact your work, I, I think you're missing the boat. But, um, Dave, I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holidays, and thank you for joining Happy me. Happy holidays to you too, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify.